This podcast is for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Okay, I'm fine, you're fine, everybody's fine. This thing's <laughs> going to last hours if we don't get started. So are you ready yeah, to just jump right into it right now? 100%. Let's do it. All right, so this episode starts in Wichita, Kansas, January 15th, 1974. Okay, Dolly Parton, number one on the on the country billboard no. hot list. Okay. Porter Wagner. No. Charlie Pride. Nope. Three strikes, you're out. Merle Haggard. Oh, man, I love Merle Haggard. Dang it. I know. I didn't even think about him. Yeah, the song was Make It Through December. I do know that song. I know. You totally know it. Yeah, so I, I was absolutely like, I was do. Kind of sad that you didn't get it. Me too. That's a great song. So the Otero family moved to Wichita, Kansas, for Joseph Otero Sr.'s job. He worked as an aircraft mechanic, and he and his wife Julie had just moved there by January of 1974. Does it matter where he worked as an aircraft mechanic, like for the military or Boeing or anything like that? Um, not really. But there was quite a few in this area at the time. There was like Cessna and some other one that I've never heard of. So I don't know. It, apparently that's like a real big industry there. All right. Cool. Not much else going on in Wichita, Kansas. So might as well gr- yeah. grow aircraft carriers. Not aircraft carriers. They don't build boats, Grant. They build the aircrafts. Oh, I thought they were the aircraft carriers. No, actual planes. It's a lot easier to get to the ocean with a plane than it is a boat in Wichita, Kansas. Yep. So the Oteros had five kids. Their oldest was in high school and the two middle kids were in junior high and the two youngest were in elementary school. On January 15th, 1974, Charlie, their oldest son, the one that was in high school, got home from school. Their family dog was outside, which was not really the norm. The dog didn't, like, hang out outside. He would go out to go potty and then come right back in. Right. So his middle two siblings were yelling for him when he came in, and he noticed his mom's purse dumped out, like, all over the kitchen. And when he went down the hall to his parents' room, he was devastated by what he found. His dad, Joseph Otero Sr., and his mom, Julie, were clearly dead. Oh. His dad was on the ground with a belt wrapped around his neck. Oh, my God. Yeah, and his mom was on the bed, bound with her hands behind her back, and Joseph Sr. also had his hands bound behind his back on on the ground. And they both had their feet tied together. And what about the mom? So I know dad had a belt around his neck, but how was the mom killed? She was also strangled. Okay. So the three oldest Otero kids called the police from a neighbor's house because the phone lines had been cut in their house. Oh, man. Dude, this is a lot for this kid to take on. Any, all these kids. So they take all these kids to the police station while they investigate what's going on. And Charlie, the oldest one, like you said, he was really, really concerned about his two youngest siblings, the two that were in elementary school. He did not want them to come home from school and find all the police there or happen to see what he just saw. And his two other siblings, they saw what he saw, right? That's why they were calling for him. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So he really didn't want that to happen with the babies. Yeah. Yeah. So he kept telling the police, like, please, please, please go get Joey and Josie from school and bring them to me. I'll tell them our parents are dead. I don't want them to just see this. Wow. Dude, this kid grew up so fast, like in minutes, had to go from a regular high school kid to 
an, a full-blown adult. Yeah, totally. And the youngest two siblings were only nine and 11. So their school got out later because they started later. Well, the police finally had to tell Charlie that when they went through the rest of the house, they found nine-year-old Joey and 11-year-old Josie in the house and they were also murdered. No, no. Yes. Joey was in his bedroom and he was bound with blind cords and plastic over his head. And they also found impressions on the carpet of his room from a chair. Like whoever killed him brought a chair in there and watched him die. Oh my God. Dude. Yeah. I mean, I know who this is. We all know who this is, but like, and I've heard this story, but just hearing it again, like it just, it. Yeah, the, there's, the there's details some, are rough. There's something about this one, well, all of them, but that just drives that knife into your stomach more and more and more. Oh, Yeah, BTK is definitely one of the worst. No doubt. As far as like the little details and stuff go, it's he's the worst for sure. So little Josie was found in the basement and she had been hung with a noose by a oh, drain pipe. God. I don't know that I want to do this one anymore. She hadn't been physically violated, but there was semen found near her body. So while she was dying or after she died, he jerked off. Yes. Disgusting. Wow. Yeah, so this is obviously a super traumatizing crime, especially for all the police officers that had to see this these scenes. So Wichita isn't used to quadruple murders. Not that, like, any town really is. I mean, we know based on the Idaho murders that when there's a quadruple murder, you hear about it. Like, it's... Big news. Oh, huge, yeah. Because they're rare, and thankfully. Oh, absolutely. So when the graphic details start coming out about what went on in this crime scene, it was pretty much panic in the local Wichita area. Kind of like it was in Idaho after that, you know, everybody was just scared. They didn't know what to do. What else do you do? You don't know who it is. And this happened in a gross way. Like, this could literally be anybody. But they were working under the theory, though, that the murderer probably knew the Oteros because it was so violent and so personal that the police were kind of working the assumption that they knew their attend. Like, it was somebody with a grudge against them specifically, which would make people feel better. Yeah. And that makes sense. Like, it sounds like something that somebody would do who knew them. Until April 4th, 1974. So four months later, a 21-year-old college student named Catherine Bright and her younger brother Kevin, who was only 19, came home and they were confronted by a monster in their house. He forced Kevin at gunpoint to tie up Catherine, and then he bound Kevin and separated them. He tried strangling Catherine, but Kevin broke out of his restraints at this time and confronted him. That's when BTK shot him in the head twice. So he has no, like, he's just doing it. Like, he doesn't care how it happens. He's just killing people. Right. But by some miracle, Kevin wasn't dead and he ran out of the house for help. And when BTK realized that he was losing control of the situation, he strangled Catherine and she wouldn't survive. But Kevin did survive. Yeah. His injuries were pretty substantial, though. And the only description that he could give of their attacker was tall and white. Everybody in Wichita is white. So, yep. But at least, hey, tall. But I mean, tall again is a subjective yes. parameter. Like, to me, I think everybody's tall, but to you, not everybody's tall. <laughs> right. That's kind of what I was thinking. It depends on the person saying it. Yes. So around this time, there was a couple of brothers that were kind of claiming responsibility for the Otero murders in jail. 
they were in jail for something else, but you know how people are like kind of a little loony bins and they'll admit to stuff they didn't do to try to seem tougher in prison. 100%. People do it all the time. Yeah, well, the real BTK killer was a little ticked off when he heard that. When he heard that somebody was like trying to take credit for his murder. <laughs> That's another thing to be real weird about. Like, no, I'm the one who created that heinous act. Okay. Yeah. So he typed up a letter and put it in a book at the public library. Then he called the Wichita Eagle, which is like a newspaper in Wichita, and told them where to find the letter. It was in an engineering book. This goes right into that lawless land, though, thing. Like, 74, there's no cameras around. Like, you could call from pretty much... He probably called from his house, and they couldn't trace it. Like, Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, so the letter gave info about the Otero crime scene that was never in the news. And really matter-of-fact. Like, not even sensationalized, just really like, this is where this body was, and this is how this body was positioned. Like, just very matter-of-fact, and the only person who would know that info was the killer. I mean, he even put in that letter, like, how many knots were in the noose that he hung Josie with. Oh, so yeah, he made sure that whoever found it and read it knew, like, only person who would know this stuff is the guy who did it, and... That was me. Right? So those guys in jail didn't know any of that. So obviously, you know, they're just kind of idiots. They didn't know. They pretty much ruled them out right away. He also says something in that letter about Factor X that entered his brain. Like, it's like some unknown entity that he can't get rid of that makes him do bad shit. He calls it Factor X. Just that's what overtakes him? Yes. He just uses the term Factor X, which is real dumb. He uses real dumb (laughs) terms. He says if he asks for help, like from a psychologist or a shrink, they'll just hit the panic button and call 911. So he's like, even though I want to stop this, like I can't because I can't even ask for help. At the end of the letter, he also says, good luck hunting. Oh, my God. Like, and and he is referring to hunting for himself, right? Like, good luck hunting for me. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. he says, maybe you can stop me, you know, because I can't. He also says, you can call me bind, torture, kill. And he tells them that he has his next victim already picked out. Should we really be calling him BTK? Because you're not supposed to give yourself a nickname, so. No, not really, but. <laughs> I'd like to make up, like, real shitty nicknames for serial killers, like Little Dick Killer. Or, <laughs> the know. Little Dick Killer. <laughs> I definitely you know, think... or like whatever they're the most sensitive about, you know? Yeah, whatever it is that and just is really play on them that. And, the, and makes this the reason why they're doing them, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, after he tells them that he has his next victim picked out in that letter, the police start placing ads in the newspaper, like personal ads. The first one says, BTK, help is available, and a phone number. Like, they're hoping he's going to call. I mean, that's one tactic, but, like, what else are you going to do? And, I mean, you might as well reach out directly to him and say, hey, we've got, we can help you. Like, if he's really looking for help, maybe he will call. Right, but he didn't call. Well, I don't think he's really looking for help, so. No, he's not. He's looking for the chase. But, yeah, he never calls. In fact, they don't hear from him for a long time. Like, almost three years. No kills, no letters, no nothing. So this is something he can control, it seems. I mean, maybe. At the time, they're thinking that he's either in jail or dead, because that's what they always think. But we'll find out later what happened. So on March 17th, 1977, a lady named Shirley Vianne Relford was homesick in bed. She had the flu or something, a cold. Yeah, took the day off. 
stayed home to get well. Yeah, and she sent her five-year-old son to the corner store to get her soup. At least it wasn't cigarettes, because that's they used to send their kids <laughs> to get cigarettes. So. Yeah. But on his walk back home, a guy stopped him and asked him to look at a picture. And he asked the little boy if he recognized anybody in the picture. And the little boy said no. The guy said, okay, thanks. And they like went their separate ways. But then a few minutes later, after he got home, the same man knocked on his front door. And when Shirley's little boy opened up the door, the man just walked right in. No way. And when Shirley came out of her bedroom to see who was at the door, the man held her at gunpoint. And he told her to put the three children in the bathroom with like blankets and toys and lock them in there. So she told her kids, just listen to the guy, you know, we'll get out of this, just go in the bathroom and behave. So once she locked him in the bathroom, he tied the doorknob to the sink and then pushed her bed up against the door, like kind of locking him in there, sort of. And then he bound her hands and feet, pushed her on the bed face down, and he planned to kill her and her kids. He put a bag over her head and he tied a rope around her neck super tight. And one of her kids broke the bathroom window and started screaming for help, which scared BTK off. Oh, thank God. Yeah, so her five-year-old, the little boy that had gone out to the store, he broke out of the bathroom somehow, like, by breaking the doorknob, and he tried to untie the rope, but he couldn't. Oh, my God. Yeah. And interviews with this little boy, I mean, obviously he's a grown man now, but he still, like, is all fucked up, and he's like, if I could have just got the rope untied, there might have been hope, and which obviously it's not his fault. No, but this is gonna stick with him. But she was likely already dead before BTK even left, but, you know, that's how he felt, was like, if he could have got the rope undone, he might have been able to save her. So, by the time that little boy was 13, he was diagnosed with 27 personalities and became an alcoholic and a drug addict. And in those interviews, he's like, if my mom wouldn't have been murdered in front of me, I hope I don't think I'd be this way. I don't think so either. I mean, that kind of trauma, like, I mean, shatters somebody. And in that time, too, like, there wasn't quite the help there is now. So absolutely. No question. You know? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the kids could only give a vague description of the murderer, but the police were still pretty sure it was BTK, even though they tried to keep that kind of low key at first because it had been three years since he had killed anybody. So they didn't want panic. So- the cops thought, okay, he's back, right? Like, they weren't thinking, like, oh, this is somebody new. Their first inkling was, it's the same guy. Yes, because she was bound on, like, right. the same way he bound the other victims. Yeah. That's what I thought. I just wanted to be sure. Yep. So, in December of 1977, he called the police himself to report his latest victim. He gave them her address, and when they went there, they found 25-year-old Nancy Fox dead in her own home. She was laying on her bed, strangled with a belt, which was still around her neck, and her hands and feet were bound. They found semen on her nightgown that was left at the scene. Like, he crumpled it up and threw it in the corner, but he left his semen on it. And at this point, I mean, semen's there so they can get kind of clues, but the forensics isn't there. Like, they can't test things yet, right? Yeah, they don't have DNA. Okay, yeah, no. that's what I thought. So they released the audio from the 911 call to see if it garnered any tips, because when he called, he said he wanted to report a homicide. He said homicide real weird. And so the cops thought that somebody might recognize the way he said homicide. A homicide. But there was nothing. So by early 1978, the killer decided to send a letter to KKTV, which they call Cake TV, and I have a hard time with that, but... It's a stupid name. Yeah, so K-A-K-E-TV. God, it's easier to say cake than to spell it, but... (laughs) 
Anyway, he sent a letter to them, and he claimed to be responsible for the Oteros. He also claimed to be responsible for Catherine Bright, the girl whose brother was shot in the head twice but survived. Shirley Vianne Relford, the one whose five-year-old son couldn't get the rope untied. And Nancy Fox. So by this time, there's no denying that he's a serial killer and he's responsible for all of these. Because up until this point, they weren't positive. They thought so, but they weren't sure. But now they're sure. So in this letter, he said that he was going to put plastic bags on Shirley's boy's heads like he did Joey Otero. And he was going to hang her little daughter like he did Josie Otero. So the red flags go off and they're like, we got to protect these kids now. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and he's making no, he's not even like hinting at the fact that he was going to leave those kids alive in the bathroom. Like he's literally saying he was planning on killing those kids. Right. They just happened to break out of that bathroom window. He went on to talk about in the same letter, he went on to talk about that stupid factor X. Nobody can understand him because they don't have factor X. And he explained Factor X as a supernatural element that motivated people like him. So he's saying that this is like a, a lack of a better term, a spiritual thing that is within him. Uh Uh-huh. And he's saying it's also in people like Jack the Ripper, Son of Sam, Hillside Stranglers. And in this letter, he said, how many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Like this, this guy wants a nickname. He wants a Jack the Ripper or, yeah. And so he gave them a few suggestions for nicknames in this letter. He suggested the BTK Strangler, the Poetic Strangler, because he wrote a, like a poem for Nancy Fox, his latest victim, and it was terrible. But he wrote a poem and drew a graphic sketch of her murder scene. That's one thing. I don't know if you have any notes on this. He's not a terrible artist. He's not great. No. But he's good enough to show how He's better victim- than Samuel Little. Yeah, he's definitely better than Samuel Little. But his detail in those photos or in those pictures that he drew are so scary. Yeah. Like, like there's yeah. little Down to the de- color of clothing yeah, that they're wearing. Absolutely. And yeah. So the BTK Strangler, the Poetic Strangler, the Wichita Strangler, the Wichita Hangman. The Wichita Hangman. Wow. Or the Asphyxiator. Those were his suggestions in this letter. That's pretty cold. That he's like, he's so okay with this, that he's coming up with his own nicknames about what people should be calling him. And then he signed the letter, seven down, many more to go. Whew, that's chilling. Then a week later, the Wichita Eagle got another poem in the mail about Shirley Vianne Relford. She's the one whose kids were locked in the bathroom that survived. This was super stupid. It was called Shirley Locks, but he signed that poem BTK. So again, he's choosing that. He wants the moniker BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill. Yes. There was a ton of typos and misprints in this letter, too. And the police weren't sure if that was done intentionally or if English was BTK's second language. It almost seemed like it might be. Because he did things like he didn't just misspell words. He would leave off an S or use the wrong, like, when it should have been, like, you know, something, shoes. He would say shoe or he would use like a ed like a past tense when he wasn't supposed to like he would use improper grammar yeah so either he's foreign and english is in his first language or he's not very well educated yep so they give him attention because they figured out obviously that's what he wants he keeps writing us letters and stuff you know he's trying to provoke us to communicate with him or give him some sort of acknowledgement so they start holding these press conferences and it's they're not really talking to the public even though they're acting like it they're talking directly to him 
because they know he's going to be watching. So even any time they say anything to the community in one of these press conferences, they know they're talking directly to him. And it's all calculated. They even chose, like, the same guy to do every press conference because they thought, like, okay, then he'll have, like, a, a face to put with the investigation and he'll feel more like we're talking directly to him. In one of these press conferences, this is the first time that the police officially say there's, like, a monster on the loot. There's a serial killer. Active. I mean, it's about damn time, right? Like, yeah, people need to be able to know what's going on so that they can do their best to protect themselves from this. Yeah, totally. But it is the first time that, like, for sure, he's been connected to all these murders and they say it publicly. And, of course, everybody kind of panics, which is what they were trying to avoid. But then nothing else happens. After that, he just goes quiet again. And he kind of stays that way. So... He's been active for like four years, but almost three years of that was silent, and now he's silent again. So he goes in these like crazy spurts of communicating with the police and killing. So during this silent time, they tracked down cases all over the country to see if he moved, and they couldn't find anything that was similar. They, you know, suspected that he died in prison like they always do, or that he just died in general. Because all the experts say, you know, serial killers don't stop unless they're stopped. That's what they always say. They also say that he's going to blend in and be a member of the community. That's the craziest part about serial killers to me is because there's no look about them. There's no way to like know who it is. It literally could be anybody. It could be your neighbor. You have no idea. Yeah. The only sign of him in 1979 was a letter that a lady named Anna Williams got that was titled, Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? And it was pretty much saying that he stalked her and broke into her home and then she never came home, but that he was going to kill her. This really freaked her out because the week before, she did have a break-in at her house. But she didn't suspect BTK because there was only like a few little small things taken. She thought it was just like a petty burglar. But this letter goes on to say that he was waiting for her and it's signed BTK. Hmm. There was also in this letter a graphic sketch depicting what he was going to do to her. So he had already in his mind thought about it and like what the, I mean, it's a fantasy for him. Yeah. He's living out his fantasies is what he's kind of admitting right here, right? Like this is the first time that we're kind of seeing he's premeditating all of this stuff. It's not just a a break in and oh, there's people here. Right. It's No, no. He plans this down to the way he's going to tie them up. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, to go from the first ones that felt very personal, it's because they are. Yeah. And about him not being a horrible artist, that's even scarier to get a sketch that you can tell what the hell's going on in the sketch. It's not like a stick figure drawing. Right. It's pretty obvious that it's about her and what he was going to do to her. So after that, he sent another letter to Cake TV around that same time that said, Anna was the one that got away, but I'm back and ready for my next victim. So he's taunting everybody. He's taunting the media, the police, victims, everybody. Yeah. He thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, for sure. That's the case with a lot of these guys, is they feel like they're the smartest person, and they can outsmart the police, they can outsmart anybody that comes across their path. And in this case, he does, because they don't catch him, but there aren't any more victims either. There's just nothing. So in 1984, this is 10 years after the first murders of the Oteros, they assemble a task force. Because it had been five years since he had been heard from and 10 years since his first murder, they assembled this task force to try to catch him. And they do a ton of work. They track down hundreds of thousands of suspects. They even got real deep in the psychology of the killer. They theorized that he had gone to Wichita State for some reason. I don't know how they came up with that. But that he was likely a sex offender. 
but nobody that they had suspected matched that profile. So they knew that they had to outsmart him and like draw him out of hiding somehow that they needed him to keep communicating with them or they weren't going to catch him. But the issue with that is he hasn't killed in five years. So they're worried that if they draw him out, he's going to kill again. It's a tough place to be. I mean, draw him out, try to catch him, try to end this, or let him lay low and just don't kill anybody else. Yeah. By May of 1985, so after the task force and everything, there was a lady named Maureen Hedge who was 53. Her body was found in a ditch and she had been strangled and a pair of knotted pantyhose was found near her body. And some of the police at the scene were convinced it was BTK. They were like, this is him, he's back. But others weren't so sure, and BTK had never moved a victim's body before, so they didn't think it was him. Right. The way you predict what somebody's going to do next is what they've already done, and since he's never done that... They don't think it matches his M.O. Right. Then another year and a half goes by, and in September of 1986, a woman named Vicki Wagerly was strangled in her home in the middle of the day. But her husband was number one suspect for that because he had come home for lunch and assumed that Vicki was at the store and for some reason left their toddler at home alone. So he made lunch and hung out with their kid for like 45 minutes before he went in the bedroom and found his wife's body. Wow, even for then, I mean, I don't think people were leaving toddlers alone very often. So even for them, they've been like, right. this is pretty weird. Which is why he ended up being suspect number one. Because they're like, you mean you were home for 45 minutes and didn't find her body? As a husband, I can... <laughs> We're not always the most uh, instinctual. So I can see someone just like cruising being like, yeah, this is great. Hanging out with you for 45 minutes, eating lunch. This is wonderful. And then being like, huh, I guess now that I think about it, this isn't right. Yeah, exactly. So he was the number one suspect for her murder. But by 1991, BTK hasn't had a confirmed kill in almost 15 years. But by January 19th, 1991, Dolores Davis goes missing. And Dolores Davis is a 62-year-old woman who lives alone. And her boyfriend came over and all her shit was at home. Like her purse, her key, like all her stuff, her shoes, everything was there. But she wasn't and the bedding on her bed was gone. Her bed was just bare mattress. He also saw a brick that was thrown through the slider glass door. So he knew something bad had happened. But it would be another couple of weeks before they would find her body in a really rural part of the county under a bridge with pantyhose tying her up and other ligatures found around her body. I think I hate most of all this. I think I hate the binding. Tying these people up like this so that they just really will have no chance except just to be tortured. I mean... Yeah, that's got to be one of the worst things to think about. Right? Like, you you know you could do something if you could just use your limbs and you can't. Right. Just to feel that hopeless is just, I, I mean, I think it's probably one of all of our greatest fears, right? Like, that's terrible. Definitely. And this is covered all over the news because everybody else thinks it's terrible, too. They're like, who kills yeah. a 62-year-old woman like this? You know, it was it was graphic, but nobody connected it to BTK because he hadn't been active for over 15 years. So nobody was thinking BTK. But then Dolores Davis's son wrote a book about his grief and his mother's murder, and an anonymous person wrote to him. It was really awkward, and he, like, always kind of noted it in the back of his head because he was pretty much telling him, like, oh, your mom must have suffered, like, a really terrible death. But this letter also said that he would 
pretty much guarantee that Maureen Hedges' murder and Dolores Davis' murder were connected. That's what he told Dolores Davis' son. That's awful. Yeah, especially because those murders weren't connected. They were years apart. They were like six years apart. They didn't suspect BTK of either one of them, really. Some police did suspect BTK for the first murder of Maureen Hedge, but not of Dolores Davis. Wow. Yeah, so the years dragged on and on with no word from BTK. He was just gone. And then on the 30th anniversary of the Otero murders, so January 15th, 2004, they ran a story in the paper where they interviewed a criminology professor about BTK. This professor was kind of like lackadaisy about BTK. and was like, ah, nobody even remembers him. Like, it's been so long. Because it had been like 27 years since they had a confirmed kill from him and 30 years since his first kill. So he was kind of like nonchalant about it. And he was saying that BTK would never resurface. He's definitely dead or in prison. And he was saying stuff like his criminology students don't even know who BTK is, you know, because it had been so long. Yeah. Well, it turns out BTK was reading this and watching this and he was pissed off (laughs) that they were not only dismissing him, but not giving him credit for all of his murders. (laughs) That's just wild to me. Like the psyche of these guys who just get so mad that they're not getting credit for these awful, awful things. Just it really just kind of messes with my mind. Like, you know, if I do something I shouldn't, my first inclination is to cover it up and not have anybody find out. And these guys are like, no, 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 no. That's me. That's me. Like, that's just that's wild. It's just absolutely crazy. It is crazy. So he sent a package to the Wichita Eagle, pretty much saying like, fuck you guys, I'm still alive and I'm still killing. And in the package were Polaroid pictures of Vicki Wagerly and a copy of her driver's license. And the pictures were of her deceased, like the crime scene. Yeah. Vicki Wagerly was the woman whose husband was suspected of her murder. So at the time, the police didn't even think at all that BTK was connected to that. And he was upset that he wasn't getting credit for it. So he sent her driver's license and Polaroid pictures of her deceased body to the police. Like, it was me, not her husband. And the package was signed BTK. Oh, man. That made Vicky Wagerly confirmed his eighth victim. So this is huge news because a serial killer that got away with it from the 70s is taunting police in 2004, and he's got proof of victims they didn't know about. So now everybody's like, oh my God, how many more could there be? Like, if her murder was never even thought to be him, how many more could there be? I kind of was starting to think that too. I mean, I know how many, but really, yeah, with any of these serial killers, especially a guy like Samuel Little or BTK or Israel Keys is another huge one. It's like, we know how many, but we don't know how many. And that's probably true for all of them, right? Like, most likely. Yeah. So panic is really setting in. But this time it's a whole new generation of detectives that are on this case because it's 2004. Yeah. I mean, what is that? Oh, 30 years? It was 30 years. Yeah, 30 years yeah. from when it first started. So Yeah, because the article was on the 30th anniversary. Oh, right, right, right. So in 2004, after this, they get a task force together again ASAP. So they set up conference rooms with phones and computers and investigators. They got 700 tips from the public in two days. And they have to go through every one of them. Yeah. But the difference in this task force versus the original one was they had DNA and other investigative tools that the original task force just didn't have. 
didn't exist yet. So each case of BTK's known victims was re-examined and they got DNA from under Vicky's fingernails and tested it against the semen sample found next to Josie Otero's body and confirmed that BTK did kill Vicky Wagerly. Wow. So they're starting to kind of connect all these pieces. Yes. Besides just letters from him saying they're connected. Right. In 2004, they start running the DNA from all the crime scenes and confirming it. They run all these crime scenes and connect them all together. Then they take 17 to 1800 samples from suspects, DNA samples from suspects, and compare them to BTK's DNA, and none of them were a match. Nobody they had ever interviewed or suspected was a match. That's got to be frustrating, too. Yeah. So I'm like, 1,800? That's like everybody in Wichita, no? <laughs> I, I, I mean, at like, least all the boys. I mean, I feel like, yeah, they got to have more than that. Um, but <laughs> but not, not, not a lot. That's got to be like one from every family, right? <laughs> I have no idea the population of Wichita, but I mean, for the I know, Midwest, now that I said that, I'm like, is Wichita a big city? I think I feel it like is for it the Midwest. Be. Like, I saw a map not too long ago that basically said, like, there's a section of the United States that only 9% of the entire country live within, and, and Kansas falls into that. So, like, it could be. I mean, it could yeah, be. Yeah, but those statistics are skewed as fuck because 9% of the entire country is gazillions of people. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, though. Like, Wichita, again, for the Midwest is a big city. So, I'd assume there's more people than that, but I don't know how many. I mean, 1,800 is not a lot of people. Well, I would look it up, but apparently I have no internet right now. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Sorry, I just went to look it up and my internet's like, no, nope, you're done. Okay, today. so as of 2021, Wichita, Kansas' population was 395,699. Oh, shit, that's a way bigger city than I thought. Yeah. Okay, all right, well, we're not, we won't make fun of Wichita anymore for being like a small town. I mean, I think it is in comparison to where you've lived and I live. Not really, where I live now is less than 300,000 people. Is it really? Yeah. Google the population of Henderson, Nevada. I'm already doing it. 322,178 as of 2021, so you're right significantly less yeah i mean it's vegas and henderson so it's significantly more but i mean henderson is not a small town no i mean it's definitely has everything you need you know it's not like it's a podunk yeah. city and it's a up and running big metropolitan city wow i didn't know well sorry wichita big timers <laughs> so i guess 1800 is not that many when you when it's four hundred thousand people i i've Felt like that was everybody, but it's still a lot of people to take DNA samples from and test. I mean, they were working really hard. So a few weeks later, in May of 2004, a letter was sent to Cake TV. This letter was titled The BTK Story, and it had 13 chapter numbers, like the opening of a book would. Right. So it was number one, a serial killer is born, number two, dawn, three, fetish, four, fantasy world, five, the search begins, six, BTK haunts, seven, PJs, eight is M-O-I-D-R-U-S-E, so M-O-I-D and ruse. Was that all together or like it, it was supposed to be one word? No, there was dash. It was M-O-I-D-Ruse. Oh, okay. Then number nine is hits. Number 10 is Treasured Memories. Number 11 is Final Curtain Call. 12 is Dusk. And 13 is Will There Be More? And there was a homemade word search with stuff like bind, torture, kill, strangle. And in June 2004, a letter was found taped to the back of a stop sign that detailed the Otero murders like in 
really graphic detail. So it was obviously the killer that wrote it. And it was just randomly found taped to the back of a stop sign. But in this letter, he called himself Rex. Rex Hewerman? Nope, just Rex. So another letter was found in the library in July that threatened more murders. Then another letter was found in October of 2004 that was titled The BTK Life Story. A lot of the details of this letter aren't true, but at the time they didn't know what was true because they didn't know who it was. But it talked about like his mom beating him for catching him touching himself. And then that turned him on and that's what turned him into a serial killer. Real weird Oh stuff. my God. How uncomfortable is that? It was literally blaming his mommy for the fact that he liked to kill people. Yeah, real weird. So, which, I mean, maybe. So they want to play to his, his ego and get him to communicate more because they know that he's going to make a mistake. If he keeps sending them letters and stuff, he's going to make a mistake. So they acted like they were doing press conferences again to like release info to the public. But again, they were talking directly to him. They chose one guy to always be the face so that BTK would bond with him. They said they would be so interested to talk to him. He seems like he would have good stories. You know, like they were really duping him. Yeah. I mean, no other way to say it, but they're, they're like trying to like talk him up like... You know, like, hey, baby, we'd love to talk to you. You got some good stories. Yeah. I bet that just kind of stroked his ego, which is exactly what he's looking for. Totally. And the media did, too. The media was airing everything he was sending to them to give him as much attention as possible, partly because they were hoping that it would cause him to send more and they get more viewers and more ratings, but mostly because they were hoping it was going to get him to send more so that he could get caught. And they thought that him doing this and taunting the police would be keeping him busy and satisfied so that he wouldn't go out and kill people. So the media was trying to air everything they could that he sent them. What year are we in again? 2004. That's what I thought. Okay. He would even send shit to like specific reporters. In a letter he wrote, sorry about Susan and Jeff's colds because there were these two anchors that had colds. Oh, so he's watching the news and wants them to know like... Yes. I'm paying attention. I know what's going on. And this is the channel I'm watching. Totally. And the letters and postcards just keep coming. So in December of 2004, a white plastic bag is found in a park. And inside of it was Nancy Fox's driver's license. Oh, well, that's a huge clue. <laughs> and she had been murdered 27 years before. So, what? yeah, what's he even doing with it? Obviously, it's probably a, you know, a, a treasure for him. Also inside this bag, besides her license, though, was a Barbie doll that was wrapped in bondage that matched her murder scene exactly, down to the color of rope around her legs. Oh, my God. He also wrote a letter depicting her murder in graphic detail, so they knew it was him. This is one of the most sick individuals out there ever, right? Like, or that we know about, like. Definitely. And he's still living amongst everybody. Yeah. And out. Not anymore, but at this time he's out. Right. Which they is. They haven't caught him. Crazy. Like, over 30 years, this guy's doing this kind of stuff. He's just fucking with police and killing people. But, I mean, they checked all these packages and letters. There was never any fingerprints. There was no DNA, nothing. So it's not like they weren't doing their best. Like, they were doing everything they could. But then they got a letter saying that his last communication was in a post-toasties box. And he wanted to know if they got it because he left it at a Home Depot. They head to Home Depot and nothing, but they post an ad for the employees of the Home Depot. Like, if anybody found anything weird, please let us know. And in that letter, he also gave the coordinates for a rural location. And so they head out to that rural location 
when they get there, leaned up against a stop sign, they found a cereal box with a Barbie doll inside. This Barbie doll had a noose attached to a piece of PVC pipe, so it looked like a piece of a plumbing pipe, just like Josie Otero. That's what I was thinking, yeah. A few days after this, a guy that was on vacation, he worked at that Home Depot and he was on vacation, he came home and he saw the ad posted by the investigators and he was like, oh, I found something weird in the bed of my truck like the day before my vacation. You know, when he came out to his truck after work at the Home Depot. So he called them and was like, hey, I threw it away. I'm sorry. And then I went on vacation. They were like, great. So they got ready to start searching the landfill. And then an hour later, the guy called back and he was like, hey, I threw that in my trash can. And then I went on vacation and forgot to take my cans to the curb. So I still have it. Well, that worked out. That worked out famously because they didn't have to search the landfill. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, yeah, takes your search from almost impossible to quite manageable. The box that was in the bed of this guy's truck was super important because when they got it, inside was a note that asked if he could communicate with a floppy disk and if the police could track it or not. Like if he sent them a floppy disk, would they be able to track him? And he said, be honest. And it tells them to answer under the miscellaneous section in the newspaper. He tells them to say, Rex, it'll be okay if he's allowed to send a floppy disk. But he's telling them, like, he's asking them if they can trace it. So they're like, no, absolutely not. We can't trace it. No, of course not. We're not that advanced. Right. So, of course, they fucking put the ad in the paper immediately. They're like, nope, it'll be fine, Rex. (laughs) Send away on the floppy disk. Go ahead. Yeah, but they're also, like, well aware that this could be a trick. You know, because they're like, BTK's super smart. He's been outsmarting us for 30 years. So they're thinking that he might, like, frame a guy. But this is really interesting, though, because he's been doing this for so long, and obviously technology has advanced. He's asking because he doesn't know. So, you know, this is kind of going to be what trips him up because he's not as advanced in it. At the time, they're thinking that he's tricking them and that he's going to frame somebody else. I guess what I'm saying, though, is if I'm one of these police officers, I'm obviously most likely younger than this guy. And I'm thinking like, okay, we're going to be able to trip him up this way. So I know. But you think like you because you know that's how they tripped him up. I'm telling you how they were thinking. And they were thinking that BTK was fucking with them. They didn't think he was so stupid. No, I get that. They thought this guy was a fucking genius because he'd been outsmarting him for 30 years. So they thought he was asking this as a trick question to see if he could trust them, to see what they would do. They thought that they were going to really fuck up their communication with him by lying to him. But they chose to anyway because they had to try. Yeah. They got nothing to lose, right? Right. But in the meantime, they also got the video surveillance from that Home Depot parking lot, which would turn out to be pretty crucial because it's the first time they ever got BTK on video. That's huge. Now they have at least an idea of what he looks like. Way huge. But they don't have an idea of what he looks like because the guy was an employee at Home Depot, so he's parked way far away from the building. He wasn't parked like right up front. Oh. So the video surveillance is super grainy. So the only thing they could tell was that the guy pulled up in a black Jeep Cherokee, got out, and it's just like a blurry blob, got out of his car, walked over to the bed of that guy's truck, stood there for a second, put something in the bed, and then drove away. But it is still huge because the first, I mean, it's the first clue they've had that he maybe drives a Jeep Cherokee. At least, you know, starts to, narrows the possibilities. Yep. So by this time, that ad in the paper made its way to BTK. Because a few days later, another TV station, KSAS, received their very first BTK box. So it was the first TV station that wasn't Cake TV. 
Okay, so what was in the box that was sent to them? So it had jewelry from a known victim and a purple floppy disk. Oh, there we go. Yep. So they x-rayed the disc first before they opened it because they thought it might have a booby trap or a bomb or something in it. Like, they thought this guy was a fucking genius. Seriously. I mean, floppy disks are very thin. Like, and I'm not a- Oh, for those of you who don't know what a floppy disk is, it's like a disk that used to go in a computer, but it's not a CD. It's like, I don't know. It's your save icon on your computer. Make it that much easier. Is it? Absolutely. Like in Word and stuff? Yeah, it's a save icon. Hold on. I'm looking that up because I didn't, I never thought of that. Yeah, that's what it's for, because you used to save things onto a floppy disk. I don't have a save icon. In Microsoft Word? No, it just says save a copy. Well, it used to be there. <laughs> Are you sure upper left-hand corner at the in the blue in the blue ribbon all the way up to the top left? No, it just says autosave. Hmm. Oh, it does. Oh, and it's funny, the one on my computer is purple. Oh, well then, wow. How fitting for you. Yeah, that's random. Okay, so anyway, it's the save icon on your computer anyway so they x-rayed it they found that it was just a disc duh they put it in in their non-network computers that it didn't like blow up anything at the police station or whatever and their tech guy gets to work what he found was that the disc was in a computer at christ lutheran church and it was saved by a user named dennis So when they went to Christ Lutheran Church's website, they clicked on all the officers of the church, and the only guy named Dennis was the president of the congregation, Dennis Rader. Wow. But still thinking this could be a trick, because they're like, this guy's the president of his congregation, like a totally normal guy. BTK's going to frame this guy. Yeah. He has something out against him. So they go to Dennis Rader's house and do like a drive-by, and there's a black Jeep Cherokee parked in the driveway this is yahtzee it's coming together yep but they still can't like arrest him they want to bust his door down and like just strangle him but their bosses are like nope you can't do that you have to prove it first in case this is a trick we've got to figure this out so they need to get his dna to make sure before they even confront him so his daughter carrie went to ksu and she had had some medical work done at the hospital there ksu is kansas state university right i think so I just wrote KSU. (laughs) Pretty sure, though. For where they are. Yeah. So they get a warrant for her DNA from the medical center, and it matches BTK. So after 30 years, they finally know who BTK is. Wild. Yeah. So the next morning, they arrest him. But it wasn't, like, super easy because Dennis was a compliance officer, so he actually worked at the Park City Police Department. Like, his office was at the police department. What? So, like, yeah. did these guys know who he was? Well, the Park City police did, but he was being hunted by the Wichita Oh, that's police. right. That's right. We, yeah, yeah. We moved, but they definitely. still had to keep it quiet because, I mean, they all kind of talked to each other. So they had to keep the, like, arrest operation kind of secretive because they didn't want anything to get back to him. So on his way home from work on, like, a rural frontage road, I guess they realized when they were running surveillance on him waiting for the DNA that he goes home every day for lunch. So they waited on this rural frontage road. They pulled him over, and when they pulled him over, they immediately pulled him out of the car, threw him on the ground, put cuffs on him, you know. I wonder everything if, went off without a hitch. He didn't fight him. I wonder if he had been pulled over at any other point at this time, like, you know, for speeding or a stop oh, I'm sure. something, you know? I'm sure, but in those cases, the cops walk up and say, license and registration. They don't grab uh, you by the neck and throw you on the ground. Yeah, this is way different. You and... <laughs> this is bigger, yeah. bigger implications. Definitely way different. But when they put him in the back of the cop car, instead of being like, what the fuck? 
Why did you just do that? Why'd you arrest me? Why am I in the back of the cop car? The lieutenant that had done all the communications in the press conferences was sitting in the back of the cop car. And Dennis didn't say, what the fuck? Who are you? Why did I just get thrown in here? Instead, he said, hello, Mr. Landwehr. No way. Yep. Oh, man. Like, he knew. Like, the jig was up. He's done. He's been expecting it. He's been trying to get Uh caught, right? I mean, so it seems. Mm. Yeah, kind of. I mean, they took his DNA right away to confirm, and they interrogated him for almost 30 hours. And it started off pretty cordial, like he was communicative and talking, and Landwehr shows him the disc. You know, he shows him the floppy disc and explains how they traced it. And Dennis Rader was pissed. He was like, the fuck, you lied to me? (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? All this, like, that's what he's upset about. Yeah, and he's literally like, why the fuck would you lie to me? And he's like, because I was trying to... You were murdering people. Right. Like I was trying to catch you. I can't believe that's like his how he feels about this. Like he just feels betrayed because his police friends lied to him. It's like, dude. Totally. That is so the least of your issues. Yeah, he felt like they were a pretty even match, like competition. And he's like he felt like they cheated because <laughs> they lied to him. <laughs> they were like, just tell us what the fuck's going on. And he eventually just said, I'm BTK. And then he told him everything. Dennis Rader was born in Kansas. He grew up in Wichita and was the oldest of four boys. I'm just going to give you a little background on him because nobody gives a fuck. We're not going to go like super deep into <laughs> Yeah, we don't need to know all about him. Like what he did and all that kind of stuff is most important. But some of his real weird things I'd love to talk about. Yeah, like he had sadistic sexual fantasies from an extremely young age. Way younger than you should even know what that stuff is. Let alone be having fantasies about it. He also did the usual tortured animals. He had fetishes of voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation, and cross-dressing. So he used to dress up as women and put makeup on and peep on neighbors, like in his neighborhood. What is voyeurism before we get too far away from that? I don't know what that is. Like peeping toms, like staring at people who don't know you're staring at them. Oh, is that? I I had no idea that's what that was called. Yeah, watching them through the window when they're changing and shit. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he would dress up like a woman, and then he would bind himself and asphyxiate himself while he pleasured himself staring at women through their windows. This is nuts. Like, this guy could live this Mm -hmm. seemingly normal life and also be this guy, too. Yeah, because all of this was a secret. Nobody knew. I mean, he was married, had two kids. His wife didn't know. He was president of his congregation. Nobody knew. And in his quiet years when he wasn't killing, you know, when they assumed he was in prison or dead, he would dress in women's clothes and bind himself and take Polaroid pictures of himself to fantasize to, like, pretending to be one of his victims. I'm actually looking at him right now. Yeah, it's... It's... it's it's really disturbing, honestly. Yeah, he went to college for a bit. He dropped out. He joined the Chair Force from 1966 to 1970. He married a woman in 1971. They had two kids, Brian and Carrie. He went back to college, got a bachelor's degree in administration of justice. And from 74 to 88, he worked at ADT. So during the bulk of his crimes, he worked installing security systems on people's houses. So he knew their houses exactly. Yeah, he sat and talked to people every day who were scared of BTK and getting security systems because of BTK. Absolutely wild. It's one of those things that make you realize you think you know people, but you really don't. Yep. And then he worked for the census in 1989, which I don't know what that means. Like he went around and knocked on people's doors and said, who lives here? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that means. I mean, maybe he, like when they sent him back, maybe he collected the data. Yeah, I don't know. But by 1991, he was a compliance officer for Park City, Kansas. And by a compliance officer, they just mean like the dick 
of the town. <laughs> like his job was literally to write people tickets for their grass being too long or their dogs barking too loud or whatever. And people said he was a dick. He would like measure people's lawns with a tape measure. Oh my God. Dude, what a terrible job to have. And it takes a probably a special person to have that job. I won't say terrible person. But I wanted to, but I'm not going to say that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure not every compliance officer is a dick, but this guy happened to be. He was not a nice guy. So when they went to Michigan to interview his daughter, Carrie, and tell her that they arrested her dad as BTK, obviously she was in shock. Yeah, absolutely. It's shocking. Yeah, because she had what she calls a pretty normal childhood. Like she said it was idealistic. There was nothing out of the ordinary. Although in interviews, she does give examples of some physical and mental abuse. And she kind of like chalks it up to like, well, it's kind of normal. But also it was kind of like, okay, we're looking at it now because we know he's BTK. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, I guess, you know, I don't know. But she also recalls to the police that they had a neighbor, Marine Hedge, that was strangled to death and dumped in a remote ditch. And now she wonders, that never got solved. Could that be part of this? Yeah, probably. Yeah, so they had him on eight murders, and they hadn't even connected that. But he lived right down the street from Marine Hedge, which was the first victim that was ever removed from her house. Yeah, he did all of this so locally. That's what's crazy about it. So by this time, Dennis Rader was already talking and confessing, and he in- he confessed to all the known BTK murders, but also to Marine Hedge and Dolores Davis in 1991. She's the one whose son wrote the book, and then he got that weird comment from an anonymous person. Yeah. So he also confessed that he had his next victim picked out and was going to kill in October of 2004. He didn't call them victims, though. What did he call them? Um, Projects. Projects. Yeah, that's what it is. So they for sure had him on eight, but now he just confessed to two that they did not connect him to. But he confessed that when he killed Marine Hedge and Dolores Davis, that he was on a Boy Scout camping trip with his son. And after everybody fell asleep, he left and went and abducted and murdered and then dumped their bodies and then went back to the camping trip before anybody woke up. He also confessed that he took Marine Hedge from her house to his church where he had a key because he was the president of the congregation. Sure. And he took her inside his church and bound her and took photographs of her before he killed her. Damn. In his church. Yeah, he's the he's the president and he's the alarm guy too, right? So like he knows how to get through all yeah. of this without any anybody being any of the wiser. Yeah. So his memories of the murder scenes was un believably accurate like he could recall details from a murder 30 years ago that they were like looking at the crime scene photos and comparing to what he was saying and they're like oh my god like he knew colors of drapes in the room you know what i mean like it's he was very accurate he acted like he was a celebrity is really what was like he it's how he seems like he treats himself right like he feels like he's yeah You know, I don't, I'm not saying that he is. I mean, I guess he's well known now, but like he thinks of himself as like a pretty big deal. Yeah, totally. And he was acting like this is my 15 minutes to shine. Telling them the stories of his murders. He was acting like he was recalling his accomplishments is like how it seems. But just the way he was like so nonchalant about it, he's like, look, guys, I'm, I'm like a decent guy. Like, did they tell you about the church and the Boy Scout stuff? Like, I'm a decent guy. Oh, guys, I'm He's cool. like, I just have this fact. Yeah, he's like, I just have this factor X thing. It's like, fucking what? But other than what? I mean, Ugh. the church thing, the Boy Scout thing, we even out, right? Like, the things that I've done, 
But the other things I've done, we can meet in the middle and just be like, yeah, he's fine. And he's also like, he's like, hey, dude, I'm a dad. I'm a, I'm a father. I get it. But also this Factor X thing, you know, it's kind of like a huge pain in the ass. It's like, okay. He calls this cubing, though. That's another. He has like all his own weird words for things like his projects and hidey holes and trolling. He calls this where he's like a dad and a father and a serial killer and a park ranger or whatever. Like he calls it cubing where he can turn the cube and be the other person when he needs to be. And the other things that he is aren't shown to the person that he's dealing with. Hmm. It's honestly an interesting way to think about it because it reminds me, and this isn't exactly the same, but in Nightmare Before Christmas, the mayor who flips his face from like happy to sad or whatever, like real quick, it's kind of a, a similar thing like that, except with a block. Yeah. I've never seen that movie, but I, I, you explained that well, so I got it. Thank you. But that's just, it is an, it really is interesting to me, like to put it in those kinds of terms. Yeah. Cause that's what he said. Like he never showed his serial killer side of his cube to his family or to his church friends, you know, or his colleagues. They never saw that side of him. He kept right. that away from them. Although they do recall a few blow-ups that they kind of dismissed at the time. Like his daughter gave an interview saying there was one time that he got super pissed at her brother and flew up off the table and grabbed him in, in a chokehold and they had to separate them. And So a lot of times, like in psychology, they call it masking, you know, like, oh, they put on a mask to be a certain person. But in this way, he's describing it as cubing being the way I see it is they're all him. They're just different, yes. different versions of him. Yes, different versions of him. Exactly. So his family also noticed shit like the gloves and the envelopes, you know, when he was fucking with the police. But he was a stamp collector. So they assumed that the envelopes and the gloves and the stamps and the tweezers and all that stuff was for his stamp collection. Who has a stamp collection anyway? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but we're lame. Like, I have a coin collection. Coin collections are cool. By the way, I was thinking we need to go I know, back out they and are cool. do some more treasure hunting because I would love to do that. Thinking about getting scuba certified so that we can go, like, dig for treasures down below. Uh-uh, our metal detectors are waterproof. Dang, I didn't even know that. You think we could go all the way down to the Titanic like that submersible? Yeah, no thanks. Nope. <laughs> so when they searched his home, he showed the officers what he called hidey holes. Another stupid... BTK language terminology. Yeah, BTKism. And that's where he hid jewelry, bondage, trophies, driver's licenses of his victims, things like that. And they were all like in the floorboards of his house, in his backyard. They were in his home. He also kept tons of journals and notes on his projects, which is what he called his kills. He had some that were completed, like the ones he had murdered, some that were foiled, like the lady who didn't come home, and then future projects. So the police had to inform all these women that were on his future project list that they were literally on BTK's list. Wouldn't that be crazy if the cops like came to you and were like, hey, by the way, you're on BTK's list? Like, that's wild. Yeah, it is wild. But I also see why they did it, because he was known to like hunt and troll his victims. He called it trolling. So obviously their routines were very scheduled if he was like stalking them. So at least if you warn them like, hey, you should probably drive like a different way home from work every once in a while or like, you know, like you're not supposed to have the same routine all the time because that's easy for stalkers to stalk you. See, and I think this is something that women think about men. Not really. Like, what do you mean? Like going diff home different ways and like, you know, not keeping things the same. You don't take a different way home from work every couple of days? Well, I work from home, so no. But when I did, absolutely not. No, but not. when you used to drive. Not a, not a chance. Always the same route every single time. Well, unless there was a Grant, faster that's one. that's so dangerous. Why? Because people can track your habits. Nobody cares what I'm doing. 
Yeah. I'm a big white guy. Nobody's that interested in me. <laughs> Your wife is. Well, my wife is. That's true. She is interested in me, <laughs> but she's not interested in stalking me or, and she has my location. So she already tracks me. So it's fine. Yeah. Women have to think about that kind of stuff. And men, it's just not something that we ever think about. And part of that is because people don't tell us. You've grown up your entire life. People telling you, hey, change your habits. Don't keep everything the same all the time. But for us, it's like, what's the fastest way I can get home? Well, if anybody else doesn't know, take a different way home from work, like every four or five days, at least. Probably a different way home every day would be the best. Do you do that? Yeah, I do. Really? Yeah. Sometimes I take the freeway. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I stop at Joanne's on my way home from work. Sometimes I don't. Hmm. Sometimes I go to Dutch Bros. Sometimes I don't. So like you plan Most of the time I do. (laughs) You plan errands into your commute home to keep things different. Is that like, do you do that consciously or is that just kind of, oh, after work, I'll take care no. of this? I mean, I think it's subconsciously, but also it's like, I'll just take care of this after work. But then on the weeks where I don't have a bunch of errands to run, I still take random ways home from work a lot of time. Yeah. So don't act like I'm crazy. I'm, I'm not. No, crazy. I'm not acting like you're crazy at all. I'm acting okay. as if. It's not something I have to worry about, but that is something that you and probably the majority of our listeners do have to think about. They need to take those things into consideration and people are telling them throughout their lives, like, this is how you stay safe from men, which that that part I hate, you know, not that they're yeah. doing it, but that because that's the reality of it. Yeah. Let's get back to BTK. They also find out during these like interviews and stuff that he worked on some of these taunts and letters with the police and stuff at work in his office and at church. In fact, he had a file cabinet in his office at the police station full of BTK shit. Newspaper articles and Polaroids he's taken at crime scenes, like all this stuff. And each one of these folders is like for a different project. And he would carry these folders with different projects in them that had sketches and pictures and stuff like that with him while he was at work. So he could lick the folders and the pictures and pleasure himself while he was at work. Oh my god. That's weird. Yeah. There were also a lot, a a lot of Polaroid pictures of him hanging from trees and bound in different positions, wearing women's underwear that he would also use to pleasure himself at work. Ooh. Mm-hmm. That's always weird, man. Mm-hmm. And he said that all the pictures that were taken outdoors, most of them were taken on Boy Scout trips. He also told him about hotel parties that he would have. Uh, not the kind that we had in high school, either. <laughs> the... <laughs> <laughs> you don't even want to ask. I know. I, yeah, I So don't. he would take <laughs> dolls, you know, like those Barbie dolls that he was sending to the cops, and he would tie them up in different bondage positions and set them all over the hotel room and just have hotel parties with himself. Oh, man. But he's never shown any remorse, which is pretty norm. And he's talked to shrinks and investigators to try to figure out why he does this kind of shit, but not because he feels bad, just because he's like genuinely interested, like why he's such a weirdo. I'm genuinely interested why he's such a weirdo, too. Yeah, that's why he's so involved with that Catherine Ramslin, that doctor that wrote the book about him. Because he's like, hey, well, let's talk and we'll figure out why I'm like so crazy. <laughs> but remember, she's the one who spoke at CrimeCon that you were so interested in what she had to say. No, I definitely remember. Absolutely. Yeah. So this guy broke that whole killers never stop killing idea. Because when they caught him, they were like, well, did you go to prison for like that? The, all the years you were silent, he's like, oh, no, I was just busy. And that's when they were like, oh, fuck, they can stop. 
Shit. Yeah. We've been super telling everybody they can't stop. I was just busy. So when it went to court eventually, he pled guilty. Instead of taking it to trial, he pled guilty. And he was ordered to recount each crime in the courtroom. It's revolting. Because he speaks like he's talking about his fucking boring stamp collection. Even though he's talking about murdering Yeah, people's lives and how, like, he took it from them. Yes, and just, like, so matter-of-fact and so straightforward. He had obviously no empathy, which is normal, but not even any, like, shame or embarrassment about the weird shit that he does. It's it's like he really understood who he was like deep down and you kind of said he's not ashamed of it, but he's probably had so many years to kind of come to terms with it that he's just... You know, he's okay with it. Like to him, like you're finding out, but he's all he's known all along who he is. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, because that's true, because it's shocking to most people. And he's just like, whatever. I've been doing this for years. You're right. He found a way to live with it. You know, that's what's really kind of strange. And like the families of his victims, they were hearing it for the first time. His own family was hearing it for the first time. Like that's devastating in itself. Like his daughter, she talks a lot in the media and interviews and stuff. We even saw her speaking at CrimeCon. And she said in an interview that I watched with her that she wished that he was caught after his first murder, which of course most people would say that, you know, like, like, oh yeah, I wish. Same. But she even says that would suck for me and my brother because we wouldn't be here. She's like, but it would be worth it because he wouldn't have killed nine other people. Oh, interesting. That's an interesting perspective. And she was one of the best speakers we saw at CrimeCon, bar none. One of the most interesting speakers I thought but that's a really interesting perspective like to think about that right like yeah what a horrific thought to have totally like she said she wished he got caught even though it would mean that her and her brother wouldn't exist because his first he murdered the Oteros before they were born right So she's like, even though it means we wouldn't exist, that means six other families wouldn't have had to go through this. So that's what he was busy with, raising a family, which... Yeah, totally. ...is really, really... Like, it's strange to think about that somebody could take the lives of somebody else's family while creating his own. Yeah. Well, they also say that's why... The Golden State Killer had all those years of pauses in there, and then when he just stopped eventually. I know. Because he also had kids. Isn't that so bizarre, though, that these guys Mm -hmm. stopped doing, like, what I would assume are impulses, but stopped doing these things because they have other responsibilities to take care of, and they do take care of them, you know, from what she said, what they, they were present, they were there. Yeah. You know, it's not like they were bad dads on top of it. You would think someone like this mm-hmm. is a bad dad who's so into what he's doing, but like he took care of what he needed to. Again, president of his church. There were lots of people who were counting on him to be mm-hmm. someone they could count on. And yeah, that's, it's just it's wild. And this is kind of the stuff that's so interesting about the serial killer mindset is some of them. They're bad dudes. They do drugs. They kill people. Richard Ramirez comes to mind. And then there's other people like this, Golden State, Israel Keys, who kind of just take care of their their family, what needs to be done at home, too. And they kill when they can. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. It's more of a timing thing because it's not like they had kids and then they were like, oh, shit, that changed me. I shouldn't kill people. It was more like they had kids and they were like, oh, shit, I don't have time to kill people because I got to coach my daughter's soccer team. Yeah. It's weird. It's not like a moral dilemma. It's like a time dilemma. 
So by August of 2005, he's sentenced to 10 life sentences because at the time of the murders, there was no death penalty in Kansas. Mm. So his victims got to give their impact statements after this horrific court drama where he had to recount all the murders and they're heart wrenching. Like it's hard to even read them, let alone like see any videos or hear any of it. It's horrible. And this was all televised because they thought it was important that people saw that they caught BTK. But after his victim impact statements, he was allowed to give a statement. But all the victims and the victims' families all got up and walked out when he started talking. Fair, yeah. Yeah, and it's good because this son of a bitch stood up and acted like it was an award ceremony. He acted like he was giving a speech, like a thank you speech. He thinks of himself as a big deal. Yeah, he was like, I'd like to thank the prosecution for being very competitive adversaries and it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Oh, it's totally ridiculous. He was pretty much like, oh, yeah, the cops were good competition and like they're really good guys and they're pretty professional, except that one time they lied to me. You know, <laughs> it's like, Jesus. But he also weirdly compares himself to his victims in this speech. Like, he's like, oh, I like to garden and so did Dolores. And I was in the Air Force and so was Joseph Otero. Or he liked to work, or he worked on airplanes. You know, this victim loved animals and I worked at animal control for a couple of months. Like, it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, nobody, nobody wants you to compare yourself to these victims. Like, read the room, buddy. <laughs> I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. You are not a victim here, man. Yeah. The worst one was he said that Josie Otero, the little girl that he hung, the daughter of the Oteros, Uh his first murders. Right. He said that she reminded him of his daughter at that age. Don't like that. How do you do that? Yeah. Wait. Well, I guess his daughter wasn't even alive. Yeah, I get it. But I get it. Yeah. I I remembered now. But but. Yeah. Oh, my God. I wonder if he ever had like inclinations to kill anyone in his family, be it his wife or kids or anything. I don't know. I don't know, but can you imagine how scary it would be to think about like you slept every day in the same house as a serial killer? Like, I can't think like that. But I mean, I know. But to think like obviously he got mad at them at times for different things. Like, I wonder if there was ever a time where like they were scared, like, oh, dad, he's he's really mad. I wonder if he had to like bring himself back. Yeah. He had to flip that cube. Well, she described those couple of instances where he, like, flew off the handle and tried to choke her brother and stuff. So, I mean, yeah. I th- I would imagine, yes. Really? Wow. So, yeah. Anyway, so Dennis Rader's giving his speech, thanking the detectives and the community and all this shit. He gets sentenced to 10 life sentences, and he gets locked in an 8 by 8 cell to rot, which should be the end of this fucking story. But then in August of this year, it was announced by authorities that a ligature was found in the yard of his former home. And when they dug around the yard and excavated it, they found more possible trophies. So like another hidey hole. And how, I mean, it had been how many years since he had lived there? Like 18? Well, he was arrested in 2005. So yeah, 18. Yeah. So they announced then that he is the prime suspect in two more unsolved crimes. Dude, but imagine being the people who live at that house though and go, hey, by the way, we're going to need to dig up your entire backyard and excavate it. Uh, why? One of America's most notorious and awful serial killers lived here and there may be some clues in your backyard. Like, uh, okay. Like, oh my God. I'm sure if you live in BTK's old house, you already knew that. Well, now, Like, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah, like, I'm pretty sure they saw the literature and they were like, oh, we should probably call somebody about this. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, we know who used to live here. 
So Cynthia Don Kinney from Osage, Oklahoma, was 16 in June of 1976. So this was one of Dennis Rader's quiet years, you know, when he wasn't BTKing. Yeah. And she went missing from a laundromat. Now, they suspect Raider was involved because he was involved in Boy Scouts in the area that she went missing in Osage County. And at the time she went missing, a bank across the street from the laundromat just got an ADT security system installed. Now, I don't know if they've been able to prove that it was him that installed it or not. I was going to just I was just going to ask that. (laughs) They haven't said that yet, but he was definitely in the area for Boy Scouts around that time. And he was definitely probably allegedly in the area for the ADT stuff. Wow. And they also found journals. Remember, I told you he liked to journal and notebook about his projects. Yeah. They also found journals that had lines like bad wash day. What did that mean? Well, they were talking about fantasizing about kidnapping a woman from a laundromat. Oh, right, right. And so it said bad wash day. Then a Jane Doe known as Grace Doe was found in December of 1990 in Missouri. So another quiet time for BTK. Right. She was hogtied, sexually assaulted, and strangled. There were six different ties found with her body, and she was identified in 2021. As Shauna Beth Garber, who was 22 and had gone missing from Topeka, Kansas. So she was a, a Jane Doe for 31 years. Unbelievable. Absolutely crazy that we just didn't know who she was for so, so long. Well, when her body was found, she had been missing for over a month from Topeka, Kansas. Wow. Which is probably why they had trouble identifying her, because her body had been there over a month. So... The authorities are convinced that Raider's a good suspect for hers, not just because of the ties and the timeline, but because they found a graphic sketch, you know, like the ones he likes to draw, right? that depicted her crime scene exactly, oh. like to a T. Yeah. Yeah, and Raider denies these, which I kind of think so too, because he talked. When they arrested him, he wanted them to know how many murders he was responsible for. So I have a hard time believing that he held any back. Yeah, I think that too. Like, that was what I was thinking, like, as we were talking about this, and like, is there any more? It's like, I don't think he wants to, like, be secretive about this. Yeah, like, I think he wanted the attention, although authorities theorize that it might be to avoid the death penalty, because those two victims were Oklahoma and Missouri, and they have the death penalty. See, all the murders he was that he confessed to and he was convicted of were in Kansas, where they didn't have the death penalty. And I don't think so. I know. I think he'd want the attention more too. than the risk of, yeah. Yeah, I really do I don't too. know, but the police felt strongly enough about it that they called Carrie, his daughter, and said, I know you haven't seen your dad in 18 years, but like, can you go talk to him maybe and ask him if he did these? And she fucking manned up and went in and saw him after not having contact with him for like 18 years. I mean, that really shows how much, like, she's a hero in this story to be able to go and do that because- Obviously, for anybody, that's a really hard thing to do, to go and talk to someone you haven't talked to in 18 years, especially for these reasons. But yeah, I kind of—I don't remember if you talked about this at CrimeCon or not. She probably did. But this seems kind of like her way of giving back, you know, like she couldn't, yeah. she couldn't stop him, but she can do, she can help now and she can do everything she can 
to help. That I did get that impression too, that she felt like almost like she has to do as much as she can to like reverse what he did. Yeah, it's kinda, that's kind of that's kind of the impression I got too. Yeah, which is definitely not her burden, but it's nice that she's strong enough and capable enough to do that for them. Like that's right. It's not her burden, but can't you see yeah. her doing that? Like, can't you see why she takes that on? Oh like, yeah, yeah, totally. Me too. Totally. Yikes! This was a a rough one. <laughs> Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I wanted to ask you before we shut all this off. Did you hear about the short fortune teller who escaped from prison? The short fortune teller? Yeah. It was a small medium at large. (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) We had to do something to bring it back, you know? Yeah, you had to lighten it up a little bit because that was a rough episode. Yeah, At first, I wasn't going to come up with a joke today just because I knew how long it was going to be, but I had to. Like, after hearing all that, I was like... We got to do something to bring this back a little bit. There's not very, there was not very much funny in any of that. Nope. So, all right. Well, I love you. I'll talk to you later. Okay. I love you too. Bye. Bye. This podcast has been a production of Orange Halo Media LLC, hosted by Grant and Erica. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. To chat with us, go to From Crime to Crime on Instagram, From Crime to Crime on TikTok, From Crime the Number Two Crime on Twitter. Or you can visit our website at fromcrime2crime.com. See you next Wednesday.